text, Exodus chapter 2, and commencing to read at verse 1. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the river Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her friend, female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Israelites fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. 
during that long period, the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Well, if you could turn back to Exodus 2 in your Bibles. Um, I was, as I was listening to Graham read the text, it suddenly struck me, I've heard this story, I've had this story read to me for 36 years. I'm 40, I was four, when my mum and dad became Christians. But it's still so exciting. How many of you have heard this story for more than 40 years? Keep your hands up if it's more than 50 years. More than 60 years. More than 70 years. Isn't it still good, Graham and Anne and all of you others, Keith and Chris? Isn't it still such an exciting story? We saw last week how God is at work in some of the most surprising of details. You know, in one sense, it's verses 23, 4, and 5 where we think, ah, God's at work. But God's been at work all the way through the whole of this period. And in the chapter of Exodus 2, you're talking about an 80-year period of history. We've got this courageous mum and her courageous daughter who protect her son, who goes from being under the threat of death to being protected and his protection funded by the government that were otherwise trying to kill him. And then you have this remarkable transition. He goes from being an outsider to being adopted to having the best education you could possibly imagine. But as all of that is going on, God does not allow his heart to be trapped by all that is his. His heart is growing for his people, the people of God. And that raises all of our hopes. Not only because he's seeing their struggle and he's concerned for them as slaves under Egyptian rule, but when there's an opportunity to intervene, he doesn't stay removed He turns his back on all of that stuff that's now rightfully his because he's an adopted prince of Egypt. He's willing to give up on all of that in order to try and protect one of his own people. Surely, God's deliverer is finally here. But no. No, Moses' action backfired and he fled from his people. He made that long journey that we saw on the map last week from Egypt to this nomadic people of Midian. And outwardly, it looked like a false start and a great disappointment. But as we saw last week, Moses, uh, God is at work in all of Moses' life. He's overruling that disappointment for Good, And we're going to see that plan unfold, especially in the next few weeks from uh, Exodus chapter 3. But but in verses 23 to 25, Moses takes us back to focus on what's happening to the Israelites. God's hand is at work in Moses' life. He is training him and preparing him just as much in the dust of the desert as he had been when he was surrounded by plenty in the palace. But what's going on with God's people? Verse 23, they're desperate. And in their desperation, they pray. Verse 23 begins, during that long 
period. The Hebrew's clunky to translate. It's literally something like during those many, many days. Acts 2 is that period of 80 years. You've got the 40 years until Moses intervened when the Egyptian was beating the Israelite. Then you've got another 40 years when he's in Midian. All that we've read so far is an 80-year period. But that's just Moses' life. God's people have been slaves in Egypt for four centuries. It's no wonder they've stopped counting the days. They gave up on that years ago. There comes a point, doesn't there, when in seasons of hardness, it all just becomes a blur of sadness in those many, many days. That's how seasons of hardship feel. But then there's this glimmer of hope because the king of Egypt died. And whenever a monarch dies, there's the glimmer. There's the possibility that the one who will succeed them will be better. Now, in the history of our country, maybe the most obvious example of that would be Queen Mary I. During her five years and 122 days on the throne, she repealed all of the legislation that her predecessor, Edward VI, had brought in to protect various Christian freedoms. And she gave Protestants like us a very simple choice. Exile, conversion to Catholicism, or punishment. Now, if you go and read Fox's Book of Martyrs, which you can do as I can, it lists the names of 287 people, including 56 women, who were killed for their Christian faith. That's just the names in the book. It's why she is perhaps quite fairly often referred to as Bloody Mary. And when she died on the 17th of November, 1558, when Elizabeth I took to the throne, there was this great prospect of change. Because all of a sudden, those who were longing to live their Christian life under the Scriptures went from being publicly persecuted to publicly protected. And perhaps that's what the Israelites were hoping for in Egypt. The old pharaoh has died. There's a new, new pharaoh coming in. There's a possibility that it's all going to be better. But none of that happened. The people were just as desperate. And sometimes we need to be brought to the absolute end of any hope in ourselves before we are ready to truly cry out to God. I don't want to read too much into the text, but it is after the death of the king that we read of the Israelites groaning and crying out. It would appear that there is this fresh sense of their desperation. It's the first time in the book of Exodus that you've got a record of the people praying. I don't think we should therefore assume they hadn't been praying for the previous 400 years. I'm sure they had. But there came a point for this generation when the realization that with the death of a king, the glimmer of hope perhaps in the new king being different is all completely gone. What have they got left? To pray to the one true living God. That's what Andy was helping us think about in our prayer meeting from Psalm 121 this week. And perhaps they saw that more clearly than they'd ever seen before. They groaned in their slavery and cried 
out. Now, lest we look back on this just as some ancient historical record, try and put yourselves in their desperate shoes. Chapter 1, verse 14. They are living amongst a people who have not only imprisoned them, but made it their life's mission to make their lives bitter. End of verse 14. All of their work is being ruled over ruthlessly. Verse 22. Their baby boys are being hunted. Get into chapter 2. Their workers are being assaulted. There's no sign of any of it changing with a new king. And they are groaning out. They've nothing left. And here's what I want you to see before you quickly get to the end of the story. What's their perspective when they do? Look at what's going to happen, and it's easy to get to that conclusion. But right now, what is their experience from their perspective on earth for all of that struggle, with all of their crying out, nothing's changed. It's still exactly the same situation there was. There's no relief or rescue. One king dies, another one takes over. It just looks like another century of pain is on the way. And if you stop the record in the middle of verse 23, that's where the Israelites would be. Now press that home because I think for so many of us, that's how we can feel too. The circumstances are all different. None of us are slaves in Egypt. But you may know something of this desperation and this groaning and this crying out. And if you can relate to any of that, you know that's really hard. It's hard for anybody But if you're a believer, there's a struggle that can come on the top of that that somehow makes all of that seem less than the greater struggle, which is the feeling that you are on your own. That your prayers aren't being heard. Or perhaps even that you might be tempted to think that God's not even there. Earlier this year, I had to make a complaint to my utility company. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I assume I'm not the only one in the room. I'd never done it before. I used to be a lawyer. I was not a litigious lawyer. I'm not that kind of guy that likes to make complaints. But they unilaterally changed my contract, and I had to speak to somebody. Well, there began hours of my life that I will never get back. Uh, I have been ignored. (laughs) I've been misrepresented. I've been passed from customer service operator to customer service operator. And my overriding impression for the first few months, and it took seven months before an ombudsman eventually said, you're not going to get anywhere. You might as well just accept what they're giving you. My overriding impression was they really don't care about me. And I'm not even sure they really care about the reputation of their company. Perhaps some of you feel like that in the way that you're praying right now. It feels like your prayers are not being heard and nobody cares. That's the perspective that we can have from earth. And what is so important in these few verses in Exodus 2 is that you would see heaven's perspective. 
that may be how you feel on earth from the perspective that you have. But what God does is he peels back for us that curtain that would stop us otherwise being able to see what is happening in the throne room of heaven so that you and I could see heaven's perspective as people pray. You get the transition from the perspective of earth to heaven happening at the end of verse 23. It's not that God's people's prayers just get stuck in ether somewhere and nobody knows where they've gone. They went up to God. And verses 24 to 25 show us what happens in heaven when God's people prayed. Point number two, in covenant-keeping concern, God hears his people. There are four verbs in these verses that I would love for you, if you have a physical Bible and you don't find this offensive or difficult, underline in your Bible, and maybe even more than that, write them upon your heart. God hears. God remembers. God looks. And God knows. That's the more literal translation for what we've got in verse 25, as God was concerned about them. It's literally, God knew. And we're going to look at each of those in turn. Firstly, God hears. What unbelievable comfort that is. God isn't like my utility company. God doesn't leave us on hold because he's too busy or not even interested. Not only is he there, he's attentive. And we don't deserve that. It's all too easy for us as Christians to have the wrong way of thinking about how God should listen to us. But we were born as enemies of God in this world. We were born as those who deserved only his judgment, not for him to listen to us. It's only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can approach him as we do. And it's all too easy for, take that, for us to take that for granted. So let's do a human comparison for a moment and see how incredible that blessing is. Not one single one of us assumes that we should be able to pick up the phone and speak to our king. doesn't matter whether you're a royalist or a republican. There's just a general acceptance in the country that we're not supposed to be able to have the ear of the king. There are 67 million people in the United Kingdom. There are 2.4 billion people in the Commonwealth. Our king has a plate full of official meetings with ministers. He's got all sorts of other governmental and other leadership responsibilities. All of us know that he's not got time to take a call from James. It's just not how it works. And that's fine. I don't grumble about that. He's the king. But the king of kings hears our prayers. And that is infinitely more than any of us deserve. I was really struck by one of the writers I read this week who put it like this. If you never get another affirmative action to prayer in your life, God's been better to you than you deserve just by hearing you when you pray. 
And doesn't that helpfully change our perspective? Of course it's right that we as Christians, especially if you've been in the church for a long time, you understand what it means to be a son and a daughter of God. You know all the passages in the New Testament that speak of God calling his children, come, come, and speak to me and pray to me. And all of that is right, but we don't deserve any of it. And what we need to be reminded of as we take up that great privilege is of how incredible a blessing it is. Don't chase God to be heard. He hears. And secondly, he remembers. And what gives us hope here is what God remembers. He doesn't remember the sin and the disobedience of his people. He remembers his covenant. He remembers the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembers the promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12, where he promised Abraham that God's people would have their own land. He remembers the promises that he made in Genesis 17, where he promised to Abraham that he would have a relationship, not only with Abraham, but with all of his descendants. Now, where have his descendants got stuck? Well, they're enslaved and imprisoned in Egypt. So what is God also remembering? He's remembering his promise and his covenant in Genesis 15, where he promised to rescue his people. This is part of the covenant that God made in Genesis 15. Know for certain that for 400 years your your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they'll be enslaved and ill-treated there. This is written three, 400 years before the beginning of the imprisonment in Egypt. But I, God, will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. This is what God remembers. It's his promise. But we need to be careful with the language. Because what Moses is not saying when he describes God is remembering is that it was actually possible for God to have forgotten in the sense that I am constantly forgetting people's names. It's not what Moses is saying. In fact, Moses himself would tell us that that would undermine who God is were he to forget what he has promised. You get to Deuteronomy 4, also written by Moses. And Moses says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. Then what is God doing with the word remember, we say? He's using words that we can understand. He is accommodating the communication of what he is doing so that we would understand not that he has forgotten something, but that he is about to act on it. That's what it means when we hear of God remembering. And the reason he's going to act is the driving force behind the whole book of Exodus. You could summarize the whole book of Exodus in four words. God keeps his promise. That's Exodus. There's a nation of people who are the testimony of the truth that God keeps his promise. And he's going to do it in remarkable ways. He's going to do it next week by revealing himself in the burning bush. He's going to do it by rescuing himself, his people through this incredible set of plagues that demonstrate his sovereign hand over all of the false gods of Egypt. He's going to do it by rescuing more than a million people who are powerless from an all-powerful empire. And he is then going to sustain that more than a million people that continue to grow in the desert when there is no provision for them anywhere. Why? Because God keeps his promise. It's the book of Exodus. And that is what our lives boil down to.
If you strip everything else away that is going to fade with time and be lost when you die, your entire life boils down to the covenant promises of your Savior. That's the ball game. Now, we're not living as slaves in Egypt. We're not waiting as they were for the promised Messiah that was promised all the way back to Adam and Eve through Abraham and on because we're living after the Lord Jesus Christ has come. But we've got better promises that God has said he'll always remember. Promises like John 6, verse 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Promises like John 6, verse 40. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have, that's present tense, right now, eternal life. And Jesus promises to raise them up at the last day. Promises like John 14, verse 2, my Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. When we cry out to God, as the Israelites did, God remembers his covenant promises. For he is still the same God as he was to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Thirdly, God looks. That verb in verse 25, so God looked on the Israelites, is describing exactly the same thing back in verse 11. When Moses, who had grown up, went out to where his people were and watched them, same verb, watched them at their hard labor. I think Moses is being really deliberate. He's saying, look where your hope should be. Forty-something years ago, I went out and I saw a problem and I looked. I saw. I had real concern. I even tried to intervene. But what could I really do? Here he tells those desperate people who are crying out that they cry out to a God who sees. But who's he? He's, he's the creator. When he sees, he sees with all the power of heaven and earth and the ability and our heart to respond. And not only that, fourth and final verb, God knows. Our translation says that God was concerned about them. Literally, Moses said that God knew, and he means that word knew in the Hebraic sense. He means it in the sense of there being a togetherness with that knowledge. It's not just a registering of fact. It's the same Hebrew word that is used to describe the intimacy between a husband and wife in marriage. They knew one another. It's a description of of care that binds us to someone. That is God's concern. And we're going to see that lived out. You drop down to chapter 3 and verse 7. You've got the same verbs reappear. God sees. God hears. God is concerned. It's the same no word. And all of that personal knowledge, that, that commitment to someone else, in this case a, a nation, drives God to action. Verse 8, so I have come down to rescue them. That's where all of this is going. Exodus is leading us towards a God who not only hears and remembers and looks and knows, but in light of all of that, steps down to act. Great gospel sermon coming next Sunday morning. Please invite your friends. But Exodus 2 isn't that. 
Exodus 2 is the encouragement for us to pray. And to pray even when the perspective on earth would seem to suggest that perhaps God isn't doing anything. He is and he shows us here so that we would have great courage to pray. He hears our prayers with the same interest because we are the same in his eyes. We're blood-bought children just as Moses and the faithful believers of old were. He remembers his covenant promises, now even richer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he looks and knows our needs in the same way that he knew, knew the needs of the people. All of this is meant to thrill our hearts in prayer. But it's also meant to make us ask a question. And we're going to see a number of these big questions throughout the book of Exodus. Maybe we'll do a jazzier slide as we go, because I think we might even do one that hasn't been um, misformatted. I'm sure that's my mistake. Um, we're, we're coming across a number of these throughout the book of Exodus, and I think in time perhaps what we might do is collate them all together so that there's a resource to go to. In chapter 1, we thought about one big question, was, which is, is it ever right to lie? And verse 24 makes us ask another big question that lots of Christians wrestle with. If God's sovereign... Why pray? If God's sovereign, why pray? Just think about what verse 24 is teaching us. What God has remembered is his covenant. Hundreds of years before, he promised that his people would be foreigners and slaves for 400 years. And that when that period ended, he would rescue his people, punish the Egyptians, and bring his people out with great wealth. That's God's promise to Abraham. And God always keeps his promises. Of course he does, because that's what it means to be God. So if all of those things are true, and God's already made that promise, why would we need to pray? God's already said he's going to do it. My prayers can't alter the mind of God. So why pray? John Frame answers that question with a triangle. If you've ever read anything that John Frame has written, you will know that the answer to most questions is a triangle. And he uses them very helpfully to show you three different things. If you want to ask me later about the triperspectivalism of John Frame, I'm happy to talk to you about that. You don't need to know that right now. All you need to know is there's three reasons to why we pray. Point number one, God commands us. You go all through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. God keeps commanding, not just inviting, commanding his people to pray. And there's bucket loads of references. Perhaps the shortest, the easiest, is 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that simply says, pray continually. For all the many questions that we may have, for all the things that we may not be able to understand, for all the ways that we can't see how it is that we pray and God is sovereign but somehow answers, God says, pray. And that's reason enough. But he doesn't just leave us with a bare command. His word gives us two great purposes in prayer. And the first one is that it is a means of growing in our relationship with him. Jesus describes God in Luke 11 as being better than a good father. For all of you who have a father, or for all of you who are a father, you know what that looks like in the relationship with your kids. 
you go to your father or they come to you and they ask you, not just for your time, not also for provision, but for a relationship. And good fathers, says Jesus in Luke 11, they give good gifts to their children. But what Jesus says in Luke 11 is that God the Father is better than all other fathers because he gives himself by his Holy Spirit. So that as we grow in our relationship with him, as we pray to him, as we listen to him, he is deepening our relationship with himself. Prayer is our way of growing with God. But God's second purpose in prayer is that prayer changes things. Try and thread this needle as carefully as I can. God says prayer changes things. Prayer does not change the eternal plan of God. We don't believe that as open theists, for example, that that God is reacting to the unfolding drama of life in real time. Oh, that's happening, but I'll do something over there. Oh, got to go over here. These people are calling out. Those people need help. Bruce Ware explains that when he looks at how Jesus taught us how to pray. When Jesus taught us how to pray, he told his disciples not to pray your will be formed, but your will be done. His will is decided. His plan is settled. He knows all things. He's planned all things. He has the power to accomplish every single thing that he has in store without the need for anybody else's information because he didn't know something or help because he might struggle to deliver. All of that has to be true for God to truly be the truly sovereign God that he truly is. That doesn't stop it also being true, in Bruce Ware's words, that although God is fully capable of doing it on his own, nonetheless, he enlists his people to join him in the work that alone is his. And one of the many ways we do that is in prayer. John Frame is really helpful in all of this, and he puts it very helpfully like this. God ordains prayer as a means to change history. There are things that happen because of prayer and things that do not happen because of no prayer. Now, before you think, well, that's just something of theologians written, let me quickly remind you of just three texts in the Bible. Second Chronicles 7.14. God says that if his people will humble themselves and pray, then he will forgive them and heal the land. You get to Luke 11, 9 to 10. Jesus says that he who seeks in prayer finds. You get to James 4, 2, and we're told that if we don't have the thing we need, not the thing we want, don't make that mistake, the thing we need, it's because we don't ask. God changes things as his people pray, and that's what we're seeing when you get to Exodus 2. God's already revealed his divine plan. Centuries before, God has already told Abraham that his people would be enslaved for a period and then God would rescue them from their slavery. That's God's plan. It's eternal, it's immovable, all of which means it will never change and it will come to pass. But how would God do it? You think about how God could do it. 
when we're talking about the privilege of being a part of God's plan, it's not because he needs us. God could have done the Exodus completely differently. When the 400-year timer counted down to zero in heaven, God could have simply killed all of the Egyptians in their sleep. The Israelites woke up, looked up into the sky, and there were clouds with GPS directions, taking them all the way to the promised land. He could have done that. But he doesn't because he chooses to use means to achieve his sovereign plan. One of those means is Moses, whom God has been preparing for now 80 years to be ready to lead his people from Egypt to the promised land. Another means that God has chosen to work through is the prayers of his people. He's been stirring the hearts of these Egyptians. They've been brought to this point of desperation. They know that he's their only hope. And as they're crying out and groaning, he hears, remembers, looks, knows Exodus 3. He's going to act. Yes, God had promised to act. But he has chosen to fulfill his promise in answer to the prayers of his people. So his people prayed. and God changed history. Which leaves us with a very important question as we close. If prayer changes things, and the Bible shows us that it does. And if God is at work in the world, having already settled in his own eternal mind his plan for all things, but to work so many of them out through the prayers of his people, why don't I pray more? Why don't we pray more? God has chosen that there are things, not everything, because he's the sovereign God. He can do all sorts of things all by himself. But if he has chosen to do some things in response to the prayers of his people, why don't we pray more? That's not to say, as as Simeon reminded us just a few weeks ago in that bite-sized truth, that's not to say that if all of us just pray enough, God will definitely give us what we're asking for. Sometimes we're praying for the wrong thing. And so we have that red light. Because it's not what's for our best. Sometimes we're longing for the right thing, but on our time frame instead of God's time frame. And it's the amber light because we need to keep praying and growing in our relationship with him and waiting for him and trusting him. Sometimes, Exodus 2, we are to pray because God will answer the prayers of his people and change history. I leave you with this lovely quote that has convicted me this week from Wayne Grudem. If we were really convinced that prayer changes the way God acts and that God does bring about remarkable changes in the world in response to prayer, as Scripture repeatedly teaches that he does, then we would pray much more than we do. If we pray little, it's probably because we don't really believe that prayer accomplishes much at all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would please be at work in our lives in the same way that you have always been at work in the lives of your people. Please would you bring us 
to the end of ourselves. Father, I confess, we all confess that there are things that we are holding onto as our hope, as our security, as our anchor in this life. So many of those things are good gifts from your hand that you've given us to steward wisely that we are to use for your good, for, for your glory. But Father, all too often we have turned those gifts into idols and now hold on to them for our hope. Please would you bring us to the end of trying anything but trusting in you. And please, Father, would you give us a renewed hope to pray. So many in this room have prayed for years. But as they have waited and waited and waited, discouragement has set in, the temptation of the devil, the weakness of our own sinful hearts. Father, I pray that you would rebuild our trust in you and your goodness and faithfulness to us. And as a consequence of that, you would rebuild our prayer lives. Father, we pray that you would encourage us with tokens of your grace as we pray. We know that's what's coming in the story of your dealings with your people. We know that as they prayed and prayed and prayed after all of those years of hurt and pain and longing, what seemed perhaps in this moment as, as just another delay and another frustration would soon be most wonderfully answered in the incredible deliverance of your people under your hands. Father, it's not ours to pray presumptively for the way that you might answer our prayers, but we ask that you would be gracious to those who have prayed and become discouraged for tokens of your grace that would remind us that you are the God who hears, remembers, looks, and knows. And Father, we pray that you would help us as we pray privately and publicly to do so with that same sense of joy and privilege and confidence. It seems almost too much to look back and see that your word shows us you answer the prayers of your people. Father, thank you that you do so in ways that accord with your will so that our prayers are safeguarded from us asking things of you that wouldn't be wise or best. You answer in accordance with your will and you answer in such a way that you receive all the glory. And so we ask that our church, that every Bible-believing church in this land, that as Matthew's already prayed, as we hear of challenges and persecution, as we hear of other churches pulling away from the truth of your word, as we see all of these things going on, would they drive us to our knees in that same sense of desperation? And we, would we see the God of heaven answer the prayers of his people? Father, we pray that your spirit would please Make us more like your son. We often pray for that, and we pray that specifically in this respect. For Father, we know that as we look back at the life of Jesus, one of the most wonderful things in all of the uncertainty of his life, all of the moving and the geography of his ministry, all of the pressures that he was under, he always made time to pray. And we want to be like him in that, that we would have 
a wonderful sense of the nearness of God through the Spirit of God and live lives for your glory. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.